This is a Rook Media series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 30. Welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part 30, The Curious Case of Ahmadinejad. I'm Gian Gomashi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms and we invite you to check out parts 1 through 29 of this series that are already posted. To become a sponsor or patron of Rook Media, please contact us through our website. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 30. Is there a more mercurial figure in the modern history of Iran than Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the man who served as the president of the Islamic Republic from 2005 to 2013? He was the conservative politician who is either seen as a supervillain or a superstar, depending on your perspective, your ideology, and maybe even your place in the world. Ahmadinejad was an engineer and a teacher from a very modest background. He ascended to mayor of Tehran in 2003 and ruled with a religious hard line. As president, he was a controversial figure, both domestically and internationally, for everything from aggressive economic policies to accusations of a complete disregard for human rights to overt hostility towards Israel and the West to his support for a nuclear program. By the time he won a second term in 2009 in a widely disputed election, there was hardly an Iranian anywhere in the world that didn't share an opinion on this bombastic president. And indeed, he remains an odd figure today, still active on social media and weighing in on pop culture and global affairs with provocative tweets that are half shocking, half entertaining. So how do we explain the curious case of Ahmadinejad and his place in the contemporary history of Iran? My guest today is an Iranian-British historian, author, and scholar who has quite literally published a book on the subject. Dr. Ali Masoud Ansari is an expert in modern history with a focus on the Middle East. Dr. Ansari is a professor of Iranian history and founding director of the Institute for Iranian Studies at the University of St. Andrews, a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, and an associate fellow at Chatham House, as well as the president of the British Institute for Persian Studies. 
Dr. Ansari was born in Rome, Italy, obtained his master's from King's College in London, and his doctorate from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. Dr. Ansari has published articles in prestigious journals and newspapers such as The Guardian, The Independent, and The New Statesman, and has been a regular presence at events and conferences about Iran. He is the author of several books, including The Politics of Nationalism in Modern Iran, Iran, A Very Short Introduction, Iran, Islam, and Democracy, The Politics of Managing Change, Iran's Constitutional Revolution of 1906, and Narratives of the Enlightenment, and germane to today's discussion, his book from 2007, Iran under Ahmadinejad, The Politics of Confrontation. And right now, returning to this history series, Dr. Ali Ansari joins me from Fife, Scotland today. Hello, sir. Hello, how are you? Nice to have you back on the program. Thank you for doing uh, this. It's very, it's very good. I just thought to just clarify one thing. I'm no longer president of the British Institute of Persian Studies, just to sort of make sure that's clear so nobody gets offended. Does that, that that may mean you're no longer qualified for this conversation? I know, I know. That, that's I was, I was, but I am no longer. So uh, you've been and, uh, just like Ahmadinejad. You have no chance at the presidency again. Yeah, or? well, exactly, exactly. I'm certainly not as mercurial as him. I think your description is very apt. Thank you. Well, you know, I mean, when we are talking about, I've been really dogging myself. I, I don't know how to even approach this conversation. When we're talking about Ahmadinejad, we're also talking about relatively recent history. And so yeah. I was thinking rather than just do a linear biographical look at the man, we might talk about this curious case, as I've called it, in the context of populism and authoritarianism and how and where he fits in. First of all, uh, Dr. Ansari, everything about Ahmadinejad seems like a lesson in excess. His policies, yeah. his speeches, his opinions. Is it fair to equate this former president with excess? It is. I mean, he, he, he's a very difficult uh, person to compartmentalize. You know, I mean, he's, he's very difficult. You, you, you can't sort of say... Um, you, you can't fit him into a neat category. And, and uh, I have to say, just as you have found it, sort of quite complex and difficult. I mean, he, he even that little, and I wrote a very short book on him, actually, to be honest. Uh, but I found it very difficult, actually, to write because he's just very difficult to pin down. I mean, he, he jumps. And, um, of course, they made a great virtue out of this. Uh, his supporters would say that he moves with the speed, he thinks and moves with the speed of a phantom jet, they would say, and, and that's why nobody can keep up with him. And and they, they sort of made out that this was some sort of innate genius. Uh, actually, to my my thinking, it was really the sign of a very chaotic and messy mind. I mean, he he wasn't someone who organized his thinking. And as a consequence, the rest of us trying to work out what on earth he was about have suffered. <laughs> so it's, 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 it, he, he is, you know, mercurial is, is the right term. And, and populism is also, he enjoyed the, he enjoyed the adulation of the crowd in that sense. He enjoyed it. And it clearly went to his head. Well, let me, let me start actually with a quote from you in writing about mm -hmm. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. You say... Right. The uses and abuses of charismatic authority enjoy a long pedigree in Iranian history. First of all, what do you mean by that? Second of all, was Ahmadinejad a charismatic authority? And how did he use that charisma to try and reconcile, I suppose, the contradictions of this Islamic Republic? He was a, uh, someone who was a who was a populist who enjoyed the adulation of the crowd. He felt himself, you know, as you said at the beginning, there were people who sort of love him and hate him. He he aspired to a sort of charisma, and I think he he wanted to develop a sort of a, a charismatic role for himself. Even sort of invented it in a way, 
which he sort of came to believe. I mean, th- this was the interesting thing. For those people outside his sort of like hallowed circle in a way, or those outside the sort of the, the believing circle, of which there were many, I have to say, they just saw in him a bit of a buffoon. I mean, they didn't see him in any serious. But, you know, there are people who, who described him as some sort of miracle. You know, they saw him as a, they, they actually called him as a book called The Miracle of the Third Millennium. And they described him as this. And therefore, he he also played on that in, in a very serious way. He, had, he thought he had a very special relationship with the hidden imam, for instance. Right. And um, he talked about this a lot. I mean, you all have heard a number of the He stories. did a speech about it. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, several. I mean, several, right? So he, and, and you know, many senior ayatollahs, by the way, and mullahs actually thought he was a bit, kooky as a result of this i mean this is what's quite interesting about it they thought he'd slightly lost the plot but he was trying to maintain you know both in what we would term traditional sense a sort of charismatic relationship in a sense that he felt he had some sort of religious authority but also in a very modern sense he was a sort of a populist who drew on this sort of notion that the people you know uh, adored him he pandered to that he had a lot of money to spend during his presidency and he, he threw about the money very liberally and, you know, in that sense, you know, when I say use and abuse of charisma, I mean, that's basically what he did. He, he, he tried to cultivate a charismatic identity for himself, which, to be honest, you know, many people didn't believe, but he certainly did. And then, of course, very much abused it, you know, in the sense of the way he sought to exploit that to further his own position. I mean, since he's been out of power, by the way, I mean, one of the, one of the hilarious things really about him is that he's become, and you alluded to this again in your introduction, he's become something of a champion of human rights, which is, right. which is yes. hilarious. I yeah. mean, you know, because he never was when he was in office. I mean, yeah. This is the thing with Iranian leaders. When they're in office, they, they don't give two hoots about people's human and civil rights. But when they're out of office and they're affected and they're vulnerable, then they suddenly find it. So again, he, he likes being in the limelight. He likes saying things that are a little bit outrageous, that draw attention. Well, clearly. And, I mean, if he has anything to do with his Twitter account these days, he's, he's like yeah, Kanye absolutely, West. Absolutely. You know, you don't know what, it's like, what's Kanye going to say now? I mean, he was, you know? he, was, he, was, he was engaging in some sort of thing with Angelina Jolie at one stage. I mean, you know, it's very bizarre. Very bizarre. But, but it's interesting, this, this notion of, um, you know, his notion of a connection to the divine and, and yeah. the, the hero. Because this, this does, um, if my reading of Iranian history is correct, this is something that we are, uh, you know, th- th- this works on us as Iranians. You talk about the, yeah, myth, yeah, the myth of the yeah. savior as a recurrent yeah, yeah. motif in Iranian right. society over the years. In what way did Ahmadinejad play into that narrative of a well, savior? He, he, you know, yeah, he wanted to play that role. I mean, he, he saw himself. Now, the, the interesting thing about him, and I mean, you again, you say, so when he comes, you know, he basically comes out of nowhere. Um, he, he's he becomes mayor of Tehran. He thinks he's a very successful mayor of Tehran. I, actually, in, in my book, which I looked at it, he, he wasn't that successful, but he 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 had good public relations, and he and he sort of pretended he was much better than he was. He his PhD, by the way, was in traffic management. I mean, that's that's it. it's hard, not not an interesting PhD, right. um, and and not one you know people who knew him you know not a serious one either. But nonetheless, he liked who knew who knew there was a PhD in traffic management. I know, I know. Well, this is yeah. the thing. I mean, people laughed at it when they in in Iran. You know that basically his whole PhD and everything was was basically about urban urban planning and traffic and and so it's not engineer per se in that sense i mean i think that would be a, a, li- a little bit too generous for him but no- nonetheless you know he, he he comes he he the narrative of himself really is that he comes from nowhere he he's, he's basically an unknown he becomes mayor of tehran and then he moves in steady stages and suddenly becomes president in 2005 now the the sort of the unspoken part of that narrative is that he has a lot of deep state help 
Okay, I mean that there are people in the deep state that want to bring this hardline populist in place to basically eliminate reformism in Iran as a political force. Who is the deep state but, in this case? Well, the deep state is basically Khamenei. It's it's basically the the the, the hardline clerics around uh -huh. Khamenei. Uh, the, the chief ideologue of the hardliners at the time, a gentleman by the name of Ayatollah Misbah Yazdi. You know, these are people, it was Misbah Yazdi who basically brought Ahmadinejad forward. And he said, this is our man to sort of capture the, the popular, you know, we need to get votes and this sort of thing. And, right. and we need to eliminate the, the appeal of Khatami, you see. Right. But the thing is, and, and this is always also a problem in Iranian history or in any, but if you look at it, is when weak men, when weak individuals achieve great power very quickly, they often have to try and understand in their own mind how on earth they did this. Mm. And, you know, you and I would look at this and say, well, he's had a bit of help or he's been lucky. But they, they never reach that conclusion, funny enough. They say, ah, it must have been divine providence. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, so, that I have some special talent or, mm. or God has favoured me, you see. The minute you do that, you know, the, the charisma, it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling, sort of charismatic narrative, and he believes it, and his, his, his supporters believe it. And it really comes, I think, from a deep, deep sense of inadequacy. And I, I, I think you see exactly the same with Khamenei and his group. You know, that Khamenei basically had very big shoes to fill when Khamenei died. Khamenei tried to fill those shoes. You know, he was always he was always made to feel a bit inadequate, you know, in the first few years when he became supreme leader. Right. And then suddenly, you know, he develops this cult of personality around himself about him being somehow superior to the guy he replaced. And Ahmadinejad is in that mold. And and if you want to see actually the clashes between Khamenei and Ahmadinejad in the in, in the latter years of Ahmadinejad's presidency, it's because both of them claimed some sort of divine uh, mandate but there is something about this guy right like i mean i i, I also take it well maybe i don't take exception but i i have difficulty when uh, just because we we may say, see somebody uh, we would certainly disagree with that them, we or see somebody like. as an enemy yeah that we yeah. that I mean, I mean on on a previous um episode in this this series this history series we talked about khomeini's charisma and we got some yeah. letters saying how dare you say he had well, like Nobody well the guy did. moved I mean, millions of people of right we got yeah, at some absolutely. point and this ahmed Dinajad, there's something, there's something about his character that 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 clearly works on some people. I mean, it, you know, yeah, it, yeah and, absolutely. And so, so let, and, let, and let charisma just, is not a charisma is not a moral judgment, right? People right, need to remember that, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. So let's circle back for a second. This, a yeah. lot is made of how he grew up poor. I'm I'm assuming yeah, yeah. that's not fake that he did grow up no, in no. modest means. No. So how did Ahmadinejad's modest upbringing in your view shape his character no i mean i think he's a child of the revolution i think he comes to prominence you know he the revolution uh, makes things available to him that he may not have had before the revolution but then you know he serves in the war now this is the interesting thing of course is that we don't have a single picture of ahmadinejad in uniform i mean he claimed that it was because he was under some sort of covert ops and he was doing you know very secret things on the you know iraqi border but actually, you know, most people, and certainly people I talked to who, who, who may have, you know, been aware of him in that sense said that, actually, you know, you know, he worked in a desk job, basically. I mean, he, he wasn't on some sort of secret mission. Mm. He was basically, he worked in logistics and he worked in logistics for the, for the Revolutionary Guard Corps. But of course, that's a, that's a, a very key 
place to be you know that's where all the money's being you know organized mm. and, and, and you have the sort of the um ability to distribute you know uh, lots of assets but he was never particularly senior he just people said that he was from a very early age he was very obsessed with the hidden imam i mean that, that's even very religious people in iran thought his obsession was a little bit over the top mm. so that's where he comes from and, and then he he basically ingratiates himself by becoming quote a teacher a professor with the Basij, you know, the Islamic militia. Right. And uh, that's where he builds his base. I mean, that, that's where he builds his base. He builds a base with the young students and he has a certain touch. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, you're right. You and I would think he's ludicrous. But I mean, there are people, you know, who who, who found him very affecting and, and, and had the sort of common touch. Well, let me, let me ask you, know. you about that, because he is always mm. celebrated for his uh, popularity or, or I mean, always celebrated by you know in certain circles for his popularity and common touch with ordinary people of course there's so many paradoxes when it comes to Ahmadinejad because he also oversaw the most repressive tendencies in Iran since 79 but yeah but let's yeah. take the first part first how effective and important was Ahmadinejad's populism to his success did did the masses really see him as one of them well you see, I would argue that in 2005, when he defeated Ali Akbar Hashmi Rafsanjani in the presidential election, I mean, he did have some help, actually, in, in getting through to the second round because he, he was an unknown. So he gets into the second round and has a runoff with Rafsanjani. And I think Rafsanjani in 2005 ran a very bad campaign. You know, he was the incumbent. He was the establishment. He was wealthy. He was everything that people didn't want. In comes Ahmadinejad. He does have a common touch. He ran a very sophisticated campaign, actually. He had a very good online campaign. They learned off the reformists about how to do this stuff. And Ahmadinejad did, I think, then, I mean, I, I would say, actually probably did genuinely win that runoff. I mean, people voted for him for a variety of different reasons, not because they necessarily liked him, but because they disliked Rafsanjani. So in that sense, he probably did have a certain common touch. Now, I think very soon it became apparent that actually he was you know, his his views were quite strange. And, you know, one of the first elements was when he went to the UN in September, I think, of 2005. Uh, and again, as you alluded to, he made this sort of like, um, he, he commented afterwards that when he was giving his speech, you know, there was a green halo behind him, yes. you know, you know, assuming that, you know, the hidden imam was with him or something like this, yeah. and that people were so enthralled with his uh, speech that nobody blinked for 20 minutes. Yeah. Or something. I mean, you know, there's a community. Anyway, I mean, the interesting thing, he goes back to Iran and he recounts this to a, an aged Ayatollah who basically sort of doesn't say anything, but, you know, <laughs> thinks the guy's gone a bit kooky. And I think then, and then all this stuff about the Holocaust and the state of Israel and all this stuff and a very sort of like bombastic, iconoclastic, offensive stuff that he comes out with, I think people then start to get very worried about what he means. Now, there's a vulgarity about him, obviously, which yeah. appeals to some people. I mean, some people love it in the yeah. same way that some people love the sort of vulgarity that Trump represented yeah. in some ways. You know, he sort of said it as it was and people liked it. He was an anti-political politician, if I can put it that way. But, um, you know, for those who actually knew something about politics and international relations, this was going to be deeply, deeply problematic. And, you know, he didn't have the background that people, that his supporters claimed he had in administration. What he benefited from in 2005 going forward was the fact that the oil price was going through the roof and he had huge amounts of money to play with so he could throw this money around and disguise a lot of the sort of administrative failures of his, uh, of let, his let me get to that let me get to that but yeah. for, i mean and by the way i i've been trying to avoid the the trump 
comparison because sure. it, it kind of feels reductive, but I'm I'm I, I'm going to bring it up a li- in a little bit because it's impossible not to. You know, having just gone I mean, at least, at least sitting in North America, yeah, sitting in North America in the last four or five years of Trump, you you can't almost everything that is said about Trump is applicable to Ahmadinejad. It's a very strange kind of yeah, a sim- yeah, yeah. symmetry that they have. Or, or uh, but uh, first of all. With the green halo thing, how did that not piss off the the mullahs? I mean, why would they put up with that kind of thing? Well, many orthodox mullahs were peed off by. It. I mean, they thought it was ludicrous. I mean, they, they you know, I mean, basically they 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 sort of pandered it. The problem was, and initially at least, he had the support of some very hardline clerics in the system, including Khamenei, who you know Khamenei said that Ahmadinejad's administration. Um, was the most successful administration since the Constitutional Revolution. Hmm. I mean, this is an absurd thing to say, right? But, I mean, basically, that's what he said. And, you know, certainly in Ahmadinejad's first term, there was a huge amount of support for him. Why? Because his task was to wean the population off reformism. And he seemed to be doing it. I mean, this is what they thought. He had a lot of money. He was throwing it around. He was playing the populist card. He was saying some pretty outrageous things, but it was entertaining. Right, it was entertaining. Yes. People were entertained. Yes. Bread and circuses. Yes. How, how much? Yeah. When we talk about that common touch as well in two thousand five. Yeah. I mean, you talk about Rafsanjani, but was it? A, I mean, can't we even go back a little further to Khatami? I mean, how much was this a reaction to the perceived intellectualism, certainly the reformism, but that 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 alienation from the public of of Khatami at this point? I, you see, I think there was a. I, I think there was an alienation against the system. I think there was there was a concern that even Khatami's promises remained unfulfilled. I don't think, I mean, this is my view, other people may disagree, of course, that actually there was a rejection of what Khatami stood for, but there was a, a disappointment at the fact that he couldn't deliver on his promises. Mm. I mean, that, that, was, that was really what was going on here. So there was a degree of sort of what we might call iconoclasm within society. People were fed up. I mean, if you look at... You know, let's draw another analogy, the recent French elections, right? You know, it's not that people were necessarily all pro-Marine Le Pen, right. but they wanted to kick the system. Right, and right, so people right, voted right, for the right, candidate right. who would kick the system. But you say something interesting in your writing. Let me quote you. You say, the emergence yeah. of Ahmadinejad was yeah. both a consequence and a product of the Khatami era. He was yeah. he was to be the popularizer of an otherwise rigidly elitist movement, the individual yeah. who would draw the crowds away from Khatami. Not only yeah. would he complement Khamenei, who had not been able to challenge Khatami effectively in this regard, but importantly, he would also serve to shield him. So in Ahmadinejad, the uh, religious right then would, I guess, have an antidote to, to the Khatami area, but a supportive yeah, cushion yeah, I mean, for Khamenei as well. Learned, yeah, they learned a very tough lesson, you see. Khatami came in in a shock election victory in 1997. He won two more elections, basically. One was the Majlis election in 2000, which was a landslide, which really worried the hell out of them. And then he won his own re-election in 2001, which, you know, most presidents win their re-election anyway in Iran, so it wasn't that unusual. But certainly, he he won it with a degree of popularity that other presidents have, have not won. And you cannot understand Ahmadinejad's rise outside the context of what 
the Khatami revolution, in a sense, did, which was to provide a sort of a popular base, a popular liberal base. What Ahmadinejad was intended to do was to deliver a popular hardline base, mm. a, pop, a popular reactionary base, if I could. So, you know, the, the hardline establishment in Iran were, in a sense, jealous of what Khatami had achieved. And they wanted to get that for themselves. And they had to find a suitable figure right. who could do that. Right. And of course, as as, as, as I, uh, I think I agree with my own quote there. You know, basically, what he does is he sort of shields, he shields Khamenei. So Khamenei can, you know, the deep state carries on, but you know, uh, Ahmadinejad is the front, is the window dressing. Point. How do you know, the, the structural changes in the corridors of power? I mean, how, how did the growth of uh, and the of the power of the supreme leader of Khamenei by the late '90s and early 2000s? How does that open the door for Ahmadinejad? Well, basically, it provides him with that key support. So, you know, when you think of the ILGC, the Revolution Guard Corps and the Basij supporting Ahmadinejad as a, as a sort of a structural base for him, that's basically a, a support that's that's tacitly and, and basically, not tacitly, actually, I mean, is actively provided for by the Supreme Leader and his acolytes, by the way, and the ideological acolytes around him who, who basically developed the cult of the Supreme Leader. And the way, by the way, that Ahmadinejad pays them back is that when he's in office, he he essentially reduces um, the 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 powers of the of, of the republican state, if I can put it that way. Mm. So a lot of the you know a lot of this money you know that is brought in oil income, where does it go? It's actually diverted off. It's siphoned off into these sort of revolutionary organisations. The revolutionary guards start to get into big business contracts. The Basij are given money. The Supreme Leader's Office has given piles of money. I mean, all sorts of organisations with no accountability, by the way, are, are basically, they siphon off this money. And it's all done under the auspices of the Ahmadinejad administration. So, I mean, just to give you a, a, a very, very powerful example of this, the plan and budget organisation that I think had been founded in 1947 and basically had been the single most important institution in the country for economic planning, development and budgeting, basically Ahmadinejad abolished it. I mean, he, he abolished it. He said, we don't need a plan and budget organization anymore. <laughs> he absorbed it into the president's office. And in a stroke, uh, any sense of sort of accountability or audit culture, which, as you know, was pretty thin anyway in Iran. I mean, it doesn't really exist right, at a right, great level. Right, right, right. Uh, basically goes. And, you know, the, the, the allegation that they had against the Ahmadinejad government, of course, is that there is $800 billion of oil revenue is unaccounted for. You know, nobody knows where it is. Hmm. So... And the, the reason we don't know where it is is because there were no orders. I mean, there was there was no means of accounting for it. Right. But you know, we do know where it went. It went into the pockets of all these sort of hardline elements, and who became very very wealthy. This this curious case, this 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 human that uh, uh, full of paradox. Uh, yeah. he, there's there's populism, there's authoritarianism, which we can get to, but. He was also an aggressive nationalist. Now, you make the case that no president since the inception of the Islamic Republic at that point w was quite as explicit in the yeah, yeah. exploitation of nationalist motifs. And that, that's odd to me. He's staunchly religious but vigorously nationalist. How, how do we make sense of that duality? Well, what I describe him as also is, is essentially is a millenarian. And, and what I mean by that is he mixes uh, nationalist and religious motifs together. And... Um, 
you know, Khatami, you know, Rafsanjani and Khatami also played the nationalist card, but maybe with less vociferousness. Um, Khatami did it probably in a more literate and cultured way. Uh, Ahmadinejad was the one that very explicitly uh, drew allusions with the ancient Persians and the Archimedes, and he, he, he was obviously very besotted with Cyrus the Great. I mean, in a sort of like echoes of the Shah, actually, mm. yeah, but it's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and but he also tried to sort of uh, effectively Iranianize aspects of Islam, if I can put it that way. I mean, that, you know, his his uh, chief of staff, Mashri, made a famous comment, I think, where he said that you know, you know, Abraham. Uh, was really an Iranian because he came from Mesopotamia, and his his his, his assumption was that Mesopotamia is part of Iran, Shad or Iran Zamin, and therefore is Iran. I mean, he had this sort of grandiose notion of what Iran represented, and so they they did a lot of this sort of thing. I mean, they 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 pandered to different audiences by um, drawing on you know pre-Islamic Iran, mythical Iran from the Shahnameh, of course, was heavily played, but then also tying it to this sort of very bizarre um, cult of the hidden Imam you know, which he also had. So he tried to marry all these things together. And again, it's one of those things that leaves, you know, people like you and me a bit bewildered, you know, because you look at this and you go, you know, where the hell is this guy coming from? I mean, what, what is he talking about? But for him, you know, this is what I say, I say this to students as well, you know, ideology is not meant to make sense. <laughs> it, it, in a sense, it, it is meant to make sense of nonsense, but it doesn't have a, it just has to have an internal logic. It doesn't really have to be logical from, you know, when you're looking at it from the outside. We can look at it and think this is bizarre. But for for them, it made sense. They built a universe around these ideas. Sort of. I mean, it's just, you know, we live in a world of there's the Tories and the Labour Party or the, yeah. you know, the Republicans and the Democrats. Yeah. I, I, I really can't make sense of this guy other than his outstanding kind of statements and, and dangerous policies in some case. But but to fit him into a particular box, I mean, on the nationalist thing, it's almost like he wants to be a Shah. He, you know, he, he's yeah, yeah, speaking yeah. like yeah. it's it's like Pahlavir, a kind of language, yeah, right? Yeah. No, no, I mean, he, he got so grandiose about it. I mean, he wanted, you know, so when Putin went to visit Iran in 2007, um, when he was president first time around, um, you know, uh, Ahmadinejad wanted to take him to Persepolis. I mean, he, he, wanted, he wanted to have a parade in Persepolis. And then, you know, the mullahs, you know, I don't know, said, you know, this is a bit too, you know, it's a bit too pre-revolutionary for us. So what he did instead is he put up, he, he built this sort of papier-mâché model in Tehran, you know, Persepolis, the frieze of the guards, you know, and he had Putin walking past or whatever. And I mean, basically it was, you know, it was very, very bombastic stuff. I mean, and some people loved it. I mean, of course, some people loved it. Uh but he, um, you know, I say it's it's just very chaotic. Uh, his mind was chaotic, and and he drew on whatever he wanted that appealed to him, and uh, you know, would, would he hoped would appeal to particular constituencies. So you know, obviously, the people who loved all the pre-Islamic ancient Iran stuff were not necessarily the same people who were the core supporters who liked all the stuff about the hidden right, Iran. Right. But he played he played all of it. I mean, this is populism in some ways. Uh, and some of his core followers, of course, tried to marry this. So, you know, the, there's also this notion that Cyrus the Great is almost like a proto-Muslim. You know, he's a, he's, a, he's a great Muslim. I mean, of course, this is complete nonsense, but uh, he used to play this, you know. In that, in that first term of Ahmadinejad, Dr. Ansari, how, how, how effective, we've talked about the irresponsibility of his aggressive economic policies, but how effective were they in in terms of the way they played to the population i mean if his economic planning was not entirely rational he he makes his mark by uh, indulging in spending a glut of oil money in a spree yeah, yeah. that you know is intoxicating and kind of irresistible how, how did that play with the population 
Well, I mean, the interesting thing is, is that for people on the ground, of course, as long as he was handing out subsidies, as long as he was distributing income like this, nobody really cared. You know, I mean, nobody really thought about the impact on the economy itself because he just had this money and he, he threw it around. I mean, you've got to remember, um, you know, in 2005, I think oil was going to $100 a barrel towards that. I mean, under under Khatami, when Khatami came into, I think it was this figure, if I remember correctly, when Khatami came into office in 1997, oil was $7 a barrel. When Ahmadinejad came in in 2005, it was $60 a barrel and rising. And I think during his tenure, it reached $150 a barrel or something. Wow. So, you know, a lot of people in Iran were not looking at the intricacies of the of economic management. They were just seeing the 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 the, the benefits of being thrown of having money thrown at them. Um, and some people made huge amounts of money. I mean, I I remember talking to people who said that there were some very what we would call fake jobs that were going around, and and people were raking in thirty thousand dollars a month for being members of particular committees, for instance. I mean, that 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 sort of absurdity. And you've got to bear in mind, by the way, there's no real sort of taxation in Iran, right? I mean, there's no sort of right income taxes we would have. The so people were making lots and lots of lots and lots of money. And, you know, hiding it abroad and this sort of thing. And, and, you know, there was huge amounts of corruption going on. What it basically did is it fueled corruption. But, uh, you know, the system, it kept the system afloat. But, but did it, I mean, his calling card, Ahmadinejad's calling card was was the redistribution of wealth, right? I'm, I'm speaking for the common yeah. man, etc. Yeah. If we were to give him credit for something, did he close the gap between the rich and poor? That's debatable, to be honest, because I don't think he did. I think he just made a particular group of people very, very, very rich. And um, uh, some other people felt less badly off. But obviously, a lot of the the problems that were being, you know, were just being stored up for later. Uh, and of course, you know, one of the reasons the problems came up is because his foreign policy and his international policy was such a disaster. Right. So it's really during his set. So first of all, bear in mind that you have the crisis of the Green Movement in 2009 right. when his re-election is disputed very, very heavily. Right. Um, and then he basically falls out of favor. But it's also by then 2010. Um, but by then, you know, that the Iran's nuclear file is going to the UN Security Council. Uh, sanctions, really serious sanctions kick in 2011, 2012. Um, and so even that sort of honeymoon period from 2005 to let's say to that, you know, that first five year period, even or four year period to 2009 i mean it, it it's it's you know it's squandered by the second term mm. it, it the, the whole thing is breaking apart because you know as i say to people that the, the difference between iran and the west okay or iran and many other countries is that iran does not have the institutional framework that sort of scaffolding to keep you know to keep the country together in a way so yes you get you know people say oh, you get corruption in america or Britain or Europe, of course, of course you do. Mm. But you also have institutions to guard against excess, to be able to sort of try and find ways to sort of contain the worst elements. In Iran, you know, you didn't. So he squandered all this money. You get rampant inflation. You get, you know, breakdowns of the system. The, the political system starts to fracture after 2009. And there's nothing really to hold back the, you know, the catastrophe that's coming. So, But, but by 2009... Even if we assume, and I think we can, that yeah. um, Ahmadinejad lost the election, didn't win the election, yeah. um, and, and even if we assume that he lost by a large margin, it still would mean uh, tens of millions of people voted for him. You know, um, oh, no, no. Uh, who who are I mean, those people? Uh, why why, I mean, why were they voting for him? Yeah. I mean, I'm well, actually I, I curious. Mean, why, but why? Why? You know? Why? You know? Some people felt better off because they were getting subsidies. Some people believed in it. You know, I've always said that I think his 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 constituency base probably numbered around 10 million 
And and that's not insubstantial. Mm. I mean, that's not insubstantial. I mean, we shouldn't ignore it. I don't think it was enough for him to have won a landslide of 24 million. I don't think he would ever have got that. But his basic core, um, yeah, I mean, you're talking of a population. What's the what's the population of Iran in those days? It was 70 million, maybe, right? right? right I mean, right. It's, probably, it's higher now. But let's say of that, eligible voters is maybe, you know, 55 million or 50 million, whatever. You know, he still, he, I think he can still claim easily 20, 25%, maybe even 30% of the people would vote for him. I just I, mean, want, I, I remember those videos of him wading into crowds handing out bills, you know, like, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and I wonder if the, the perception bills, was, yeah. the perception was that we, he's putting putting money in our pockets. I mean, because he was yeah, trying yeah, to... Absolutely. He was, no, it's very basic stuff. I mean, it's all basic popular stuff. I mean, the thing is, you have, we have to be careful with some of these videos, of course, because we know that some of these videos are, are, are pretty much framed in the right way, right? Right, but, right of course. But, uh, but you know, I, I, as I say to people, I say, you know, it's not, he was not unpopular. I mean, he was not unpopular. I, I just, I just don't think he was as popular as some people think he was. That, that, that's all. A moment ago, you, many a moment ago, you said the his disastrous foreign policy and international yeah, policies. Yeah. Uh, he kind of comes out of with with no particular precipitant. He comes out with this saber rattling. Yeah. devout anti-Americanism, anti-Israel, hostile kind of statements. What was that about? Well, basically, because, you know, again, you have to look at his his, his religious beliefs and, 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 and his views about the world, which is, is basically founded on a, uh, on a on a belief in, in the injustice of the, of the world order. So, you know, this comes from his religious, you know, his Shia beliefs and, and this that, you know, until the return of the hidden imam, the world order is unjust. And, and then you, you can throw in various other, you know, ideological elements into it, even elements of Marxism and other things. But it's basically a sort of feeling that the capitalist world is unjust and, 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 and the world order is unjust. And so he feels his role, believe it or not, is to come and basically rectify this. And this is why, you know, these speeches he makes, you know, he, you know, when he's talking about Israel, when he, you know, he sees these as emblematic of the injustice of the world. And actually the way to, 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 to handle this is to speak truth to power. And, and they sort of think that by being blunt about this, by talking about the hidden imam, by talking about, you know, the injustice of the state of Israel, by saying that the state of Israel is really a creation of a myth. And by myth, they really mean fake, by the way. They don't just mean a sort of a narrative. They mean mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a, that the Holocaust was fake. It didn't happen. It was there, basically invented mm -hmm. to justify the state of Israel. By doing all this, of course, he shocks, but he sort of relishes the shocking. He says, he says, the point is, is to jolt you out of your sense of complacency and we will speak truth to power and we will change the international order. And of course, this, this is a complete catastrophe. I mean, he, you know, he, he when we think about the, 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 the nationalism, by the way, and the, and the sort of the, um, some elements of that, you know, it is, it is in his tenure as president that him and his ministers and 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 I can tell you that German former ministers have told me this. You know, will say that uh, you know they would greet their Iranian counterparts, and the Iranians would sort of say to the Germans, you know, we're with you on this. You were dealt a very hard hand after the Second World War, but wow. we we know you're not yeah. guilt. You know, we're with you. We, we'll reorder the world in your. And of course, the Germans themselves are embarrassed. You know, saying, right. what, what right. you know, what are you talking about? You know, uh, it's this sort of stuff is 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 the product of a deep seated sort of ideological. Uh, belief in the injustice of the world. You see this with Putin, by the way. It's exactly the same with Putin at the moment. 
right? The, the world yeah, is but, against you them. Know, but that's the interesting thing I wonder about, because all of this yeah. stuff, I wonder how Machiavellian this is, how, how much of Ahmadinejad really is a politician. In other words, when we do that comparison with Trump, I mean, there's an argument that is often made about Trump, which is that he doesn't actually believe in anything. He just kind of go, you know, he does what it what he thinks it'll take to to rouse up a, lot, a bunch of people and get yeah. votes, right? So, I mean, he, he kind of swings from, I mean, you know, he used to be pro-choice, now he's not, he's this and he's that, whatever it takes. And so what, when we are, I mean, what are we to make of the bombastic and offensive things? You know, Ahmadinejad at one point says AIDS was created by the West or yeah, yeah, homosexuality yeah. is ugly. Are, are these things he actually believed or is he endearing himself to some traditionalist constituency? Well, I mean, he, you know, he had this he had this encounter at Columbia University. So he, he went and gave, had this debate. I mean, they gave him a platform. He had a debate. It was a bit of an awkward moment, I have to say. But he went and, and there was this thing there and he sort of makes this comment. He says, you know, we don't have homosexuals like you have. Now, that's the key difference. He says, we don't have homosexuals like you have in the West. And of course, everyone laughed at him. He thought he was being quite clever because he was trying to use a different sort of like, you know, frame of reference. You know, the way he was wording it was slightly different. But, but I think he genuinely believes, you know, he genuinely believes that whatever sort of Iran has in that sense, you know, it's a bit like saying we have Iranian Jews but Iranian Jews and Iranian Christians, for instance, are not like other Christians and other Jews. They're different. They're Iranian Jews, just like we have. We might have gay people, but they're not really gay people in the way that you have gay people. They are gay, but yeah. So, but it, 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 part of it is this sort of national sort of conceit. Um, part of it is also because obviously his religious beliefs don't allow him to accept certain things, by the way, and he's got to be careful what he says. Um uh, but part of it is also, yes, I think a sort of a faux uh, religious uh, conception. I mean, you're right about, you know, where the limitations of any comparison with Trump are. You know, Trump was much more of an opportunist in some ways. Um, and I do, do think believed it. I mean, I, I think he believed in some of the gibberish he was talking about. I mean, that, that, that was in some ways made him much more frightening, of course. But um, I wouldn't call it Machiavellian, by the way. I, I don't think he was as as cunning as he thought he was, oh, you know. okay. Uh, yeah. No, no, I don't think he was as cunning. I, I think he, he uh, you know, I, as I say to people, I say what you see is what you get with Ahmadinejad. <laughs> you know, there's no hidden meaning there. <laughs> right. you know, there's no hidden meaning. Right, right. He, uh, in some ways, Twitter is made for guys like this because you just sort of yeah, get, yeah. You get no, the stream of whatever's right. coming out of his head, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a stream of consciousness. I what, mean, you're right. What, what do you and mean? I, and, I don't think, and I don't think he thinks about it so much. I mean, when you, this is the frustrating thing, of course. I mean, I can't get into his head, you know, I don't know. But when you read the stuff about him, what he says, you know, you sort of say, this stuff seems to have just come into his head. I mean, he, he, he doesn't seem to have thought about it, but it's clearly a reflection of some deeper beliefs he has. You but, know? I mean, it would all be funny if it wasn't, you know, if there weren't lives involved yes. here. Yeah, and well, and we mentioned the authoritarianism. I mean, there's studies that show that, uh, you know, that the crackdown, the, the repressive crackdowns, uh, the, the, the way prisoners were treated, et cetera, all got worse under Ahmadinejad. Uh, was that a was that a policy from above, or was the authoritarianism something that he brought to power? I think it was a bit of both. I mean, I I, I think that the real sort of harshness in many ways is already part of the deep state, uh, which Ahmadinejad basically facilitated, if I can put it that way. But you also have to look at the psychology of the man who says that you know I am here because God has put me here. Now, if you believe that, or if you come to believe that, then those who oppose you must clearly be wrong. 
I mean, you, you know, what I, I mean that. So you right. you have less sympathy for that. So in in two thousand nine, he made a very notorious speech, of course, when the people came protesting against it, and he said they're nothing but dust and dirt. And of course, you know, this caused you know even more outrage. But I think he genuinely believed it. I don't think he was. I don't think he was as brutal as some of the people that were behind him. Um, in 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 a sense, he was one of those people who couldn't believe that people didn't love him, so he just couldn't understand it. You know, but uh, but he, you're absolutely right that I think he basically. Uh, facilitated, enabled, if you will, um, uh, some of the worst excesses of the regime to continue. Because obviously, people who were who were very brutal in the clampdown basically got away with it. I mean, mm. it's not like he was going to hold them to account. In the introduction, I talked about um, supervillain versus superstar, and yeah, we, we've yeah, been yeah. talking mostly about the domestic, about how he was seen and and the ups and downs in Iran. But there's an interesting diversity of opinions outside of Iran too, internationally, yeah. where one would potentially think, especially sitting in the West, where everybody would just think he was a bad guy, that that wasn't the case. In fact, there's a BBC doc I found from a few years ago showing this this rabid fan base for Ahmadinejad in Ghana, you know, for example. Yeah, yeah, no. How, yeah. how would that be possible? I mean, on the Arab street, there were lots of people who supported. But, you know, part of that is because, you know, uh, people like the fact that he that they believe that he stood up to America. I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of the people in these in, in developing countries like the fact that Iran and Iranian leaders stand up to America. They don't like them. They like the fact that they don't like America. That, that's a very simple dynamic. It's it's always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, how thank you? How do you feel? History will treat Ahmadinejad almost ten years removed from the the end of his second term. How do you think the Ahmadinejad era is wearing over time? Um, I think he personally. I think increasingly he will become a footnote. I mean, I, I don't think he's the major player. I think there are other major players who are much more serious than him. We are seeing the consequences now. I, I think he'd like to think he will come center stage and he will, you know, part of his bids, you know, the, the sort of Twitter stuff that you were mentioning, part of that is to try and retain a bit of a public profile and to get, you know, the attention. But I think increasingly as time proceeds, he will be seen as increasingly irrelevant. He's tried a couple of times, 2017-20, he tried again last year to run for president again. He was kind of smacked down. Uh, do, do you think there's a future for Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in, in public life? I think, yeah, I mean, this is the interesting thing. I mean, and, and you're quite right to highlight this. I mean, had he been allowed to run, he might have actually done quite well um, because he's just such a maverick. The trouble is, I don't think there is a space for him in the contemporary Islamic Republic. I mean, and or, or, or the way the Islamic Republic is shaping. The, the reason I see him as a footnote is because he came to do a job. He did it sort of reasonably well. I can't say he did it very well, according to the what was required of him. And now they've basically discarded him. I mean, that's that's basically it. I don't think he has a role to to play beyond that. So, I think if it, if Iran was a moderately free and fair society today where you could run an election people could anyone could run for an election he, he he could have i think last time round actually in the last elections actually done reasonably well um because you know people were still you know have a certain nostalgia for the fact that actually financially things are reasonably good at certainly in his first term and of course you know he's been using a lot of rhetoric you know he's been tailing his rhetoric uh, uh, in a much more sort of human rights type of dialogue. So some people have appealed to that. And and let's be honest, you know, there's not a huge amount of choice in the Islamic Republic. So, you know, they right, might have gone right. for it. But, but I just don't think the regime, the deep state, would give him the space to do anything. 
It's interesting that you should, I mean, you're the expert, so I'll defer to you, but that you should <laughs> say that you think he'll be a footnote because I feel like, of course, we'll see what happens, you know, in, yeah. in the ensuing decades, but I almost feel like I could see... Never- predict by the way right exactly but uh, but i see a day you know perhaps decades in the future where he would actually be you know in people's minds the, you know in terms of the the corruption the chaos the cartoonism he would be one of the symbols of this islamic republic that people would look back and 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 think of you know uh, but i who knows well in that point i mean in that point yes i mean i think he's a i i I, I agree with you on that element. I mean, if you're looking at the Islamic, but I think in the grand scheme, you know, if you were to say the history of Iran or the, I think uh, of someone like Khatami will play a much bigger role, will loom much larger in the longer term than Ahmadinejad will. Ahmadinejad will be seen as a response to Khatami, but really one of the more, as you quite rightly say, in a sense, you know, one of the malignant points, in a sense, in the Islamic Republic. The thing why Ahmadinejad will not, I think, will be a footnote is because I think there is far worse that's come after him. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there's that. So when when people remember the dreadfulness in some ways, will they remember Ahmadinejad or will they remember Raisi? Mm. You know, I suspect they'll remember Raisi more than they'll remember Ahmadinejad. Even though I have to say, Raisi is half the politician that Ahmadinejad was. Dr. Ali Ansari, always a pleasure. I thank you so much for this today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for thank you for your time. Bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Ali Ansari, a professor of Iranian history and founding director of the Institute for Iranian Studies at the University of St. Andrews. He is the author of Iran under Ahmadinejad, The Politics of Confrontation. We reached Dr. Ansari in Fife, Scotland today. This is full time for the Rook Media series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 30. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related and all things about this series at rookmedia.com, where you can see all the previous episodes. That's again our website, rookmedia.com, where you can also find out about becoming a patron or a sponsor of this program. Thanks to the amazing team who make Rook Media happen. Talented Anahita, Smart Pega, Super Patty Saw, Ponta the Artist, Savvy Rohan, Mahaimerta, the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe on any of our platforms if you've not done so already. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashin.